welcome on behalf of the Lumen, Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Robert Porwell, and I'm moderating this series. I'm grateful to the American Kuzana Society who's helped organize this series. Please keep your ears open for future uh, now, uh, for information about future collaborations. I'm also grateful to the various Catholic centers and organizations who are co-sponsoring this series and helping it uh, help to make it successful by spreading word about uh, uh, these events. And these include the Beatrice Institute, Calvert House, the Collegium Institute, the Genealogies of Modernity Project, the Catholic uh, Harvard Catholic Center, the Nova Forum for Catholic Thought, and St. Paul's Catholic Center. If you've enjoyed this series or have seen our other online, online events, please consider uh, supporting us. Uh, you can do that in two ways. One, with the new series on Eastern Catholic Theology coming up, we'd, like, we'd love your support in reaching out and spreading the word about this. And secondly, you can support our work financially by donating to uh, our project at lumenchristi.org donate. Turning now to today's event, the ninth presentation in our series, Reason and Beauty, in Renaissance Christian Thought and Culture. You can find previous presentations on YouTube. Last week, we heard about the 17th century Cambridge Platonists, and this week, we take a step, uh, a step generation back in time to hear about Richard Hooker. At any time in this presentation, you may ask a question using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. I now want to welcome Professor Torrance Kirby. Professor Kirby teaches at McGill University, where he is Professor of Ecclesiastical History and has directed the Center for research on religion. Professor Kirby has published widely in early modern philosophy, history, theology, including editing the companion to Richard Hooker and Richard Hooker, reformer and Platonist. He is a recipient of many grants and fellowships, including a very recent recipient of, the in, of an insight grant for research on the reception of German mysticism in early modern England. For all this, we are very pleased to have Professor Kirby with us to speak with us today. Professor Kirby, good to see you. Okay, sorry about the glitch there. Um, no first, worries. Let me thank the American Kuzana Society, um, of which I am a, um, an occasional participant, or I'm a sort of a peripheral member, but I go occasionally to their meetings, and the Lumen Christi Institute at the University of Chicago for this kind invitation. Um, in particular, I'd like to thank David Albertson for his invitation to contribute a paper to this series on reason and beauty in the Renaissance Christian thought and culture. And I would like to also thank uh, Denny Robichaud, a member of the Kuzana Society, who kindly proposed my participation. Um, thanks also to Robert Porwall and Peter Tierney. And I would also like to take this opportunity, if I may, to thank my colleagues in the School of Religious Studies at McGill University for their uh, collegial support. And finally, um, as you can see at the bottom of the screen, I'm, I would like to acknowledge the generous funding I've received from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada over the past 20 years. Um, I just got another four-year grant from them to work on uh, the reception of German mysticism in, in early modern England. Um, one of my main tasks is to point out to scholars in Cambridge that Cambridge Platonism actually starts out as Oxford Platonism. Uh, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about an Oxford Platonist tonight. Okay. Richard Hooker. Um, Hooker was born uh, in April of 1554 at uh, um, a village called Heavy Tree near Exeter in Devonshire. He died at Bishopsbourne, Kent on All Souls Day, the 2nd of November 1600. It's a rather short lifespan. 
I think Hooker may have worked himself to death. He was educated at Exeter Grammar School and Corpus Christi College, Oxford. And he matriculated there in 1569. His tutor was John Reynolds, the late, later president of Corpus Christi and one of the translators of the authorized version of the Bible. Hooker gained a BA and was admitted a disciple of Corpus Christi in 1573. In 1577, he proceeded Master of Arts and was elected a full fellow of his college in 1579, and shortly thereafter was appointed deputy lecturer to Thomas Kingsmill, the Regis Professor of Hebrew. Hooker, like Martin Luther, was a Hebrew scholar. Hooker delivered the Hebrew lecture for the remainder of his time at Oxford. And so, he began his career as a biblical scholar, and this was to be definitive for his work. In March 1585, by letters patent received from the Crown and under the patronage of John Whitgift, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Booker was appointed Master of the Temple Church at the Inns of Court, where he shared the pulpit with the disciplinarian Puritan divine Walter Travers. Before a congregation of English judges and barristers in the Temple Church, and there you can see some images of it. Those of you who have watched uh, um, the film, The Da Vinci Code may recognize this place. That's where all of those catafalques of the Crusaders are located. Um, so before a congregation of English judges and barristers in the Temple Church, Hooker and Travers engaged in a theological controversy, which was to occupy Hooker for the remainder of his short life. He died before he reached the age of 50. The polemics of this pulpit exchange served as a stimulus to Hooker's composition of his great treatise, The Ecclesiastical Polity. Richard Hooker's contribution to the theology of the English Reformation emerges in the context of the polemics surrounding the implementation of the constitutional provisions of the Elizabethan settlement of 1559, which consisted of two major uh, statutes of Parliament, the Act of Supremacy and the Act of Uniformity. Uh, the Act of Uniformity uh, mandated the use of the Book of Common Prayer throughout the realm. Uh, the Act of Supremacy, of course, made Elizabeth head of the Church of England. His apologetic strategy in this treatise of the laws of ecclesiastical polity is largely governed by what I would, am going to call a sapiential approach. Hooker's wisdom theology provides the matrix within which he develops his figural reading of Holy Scripture. What is particularly noteworthy in this approach to his combining of, uh, is it, in this approach is his combining of Christian Neoplatonic metaphysics with reformed biblical hermeneutics. Hooker's integration of a reformed theological perspective with this inheritance of an ancient philosophical tradition is the hallmark of his unique contribution to the later development of Anglican exegesis, liturgies, and devotion. This lecture will focus principally on Hooker's subtle and intricate configuration of God as law in the first book of his treatise. Um, in the sundry works, both of art and also of nature, where that which hath greatest force in the things we see is notwithstanding itself sometimes not seen. The stateliness of houses, the goodliness of trees, when we behold them, delighteth the eye. But that foundation which beareth up the one, that root which ministereth unto the other, nourishment and life, is in the bosom of the earth concealed. 
And if there be at any time occasion to search into it, such labor is then more necessary than pleasant, both to them which undertake it and for the lookers on. In like manner, the use and benefit of good laws, all that live under them may enjoy with delight and comfort, albeit the grounds and first original causes from whence they have sprung be unknown, as to the greatest part of men they are. Hooker commences his discussion of the origin of law, uh, that law which giveth life unto all the rest, with an appeal to two vivid metaphors, one artificial and another natural, a constructed foundation and a nourishing root. As his argument unfolds, it becomes clear that, that his aim in the treatise of the laws of ecclesiastical polity is to show that the Elizabethan religious and constitutional settlement, settlement of 1559, the stately house, as it were, of the established church, and the goodly tree of the flourishing commonwealth is based upon good laws whose ultimate source is altogether hidden from view in the bosom of the earth concealed, according to his metaphor. In this, is this subterranean root or foundation in any way knowable? The metaphor serves to introduce an extended analysis of the origin of law. Hooker goes on to identify this veiled first original cause of good laws is that law whereby the eternal himself doth work. Hooker defines law in general as that which doth assign unto each thing the kind, that, uh, that which does moderate the force and power, that which does appoint the form and measure of working. He goes on to affirm that the highest measure of working in the divine activity on the ground that the only works and operations of God have him both for their worker and the law whereby they are wrought. The being of God, he maintains, is a kind of law to his working. For that perfection which God is, he giveth perfection to what he doth. God, therefore, is a law both to himself and to all other things besides. This identity of worker, work done, and the activity of working a kind of Trinitarian formulation, uh, anchor the assertion of his metaphorical speech in a non-metaphorical affirmative proposition, namely that God in himself is essentially law. So this is, this is a central thesis of Hooker's writing. And as Aquinas puts it to, uh, in the Summa Theologica, uh, for those of you interested, it's in the, the um, Prima Secundi and the first part of the second part, question 91, article one, uh, that end of the divine government is God himself and his law is not distinct from himself. So this identity of law and God has a, a, a longstanding tradition in uh, uh, theology. In the peroration to his exposition of the nature of law and its generic division into various derivative kinds found at the end of the first book of his treatise, uh, Hooker summarizes this argument in a striking passage evocative of the hymns to holy wisdom in the scriptures. Of law, there can be no less acknowledged than that her seat is the bosom of God, her voice, the harmony of the world, all things in heaven and earth do her homage, the very least as feeling her care and the greatest as not exempted from her power, both angels and men and creatures of what condition soever, 
though each in different sort and manner, yet all with uniform consent, admiring her as the mother of their peace and joy. As Bruin Williams has observed, Hooker's use of the feminine pronoun in explicit reference to law would alert any scripturally literate reader to the parallel with the divine Sophia. And indeed, what Hooker claims on behalf of law and the sapi uh, what Hooker claims on behalf of law, the sapiential books of Proverbs, Job, and the wisdom of Solomon affirm of the very wisdom of God. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of gold. I was set up from everlasting, from beginning or ever the earth was. Wisdom reacheth from one end to another mightily and sweetly, suaviter in the Vulgate, sweetly doth she order all things. For Hooker, the sapiential theologian, then it is because God is his own wisdom that he may also affirm that God in himself is law, a law both to himself and to all other things besides. All those things which are done by him have some end for which they are done, and the end for which they are done is a reason of his will to do them. They err, therefore, who think that of the will of God to do this or that, there is no reason besides his will. And there, I think he may be taking a swipe at Duns Scotus. His claim bears comparison with Thomas Aquinas, for whom the end of the divine government is God himself, and his law is not distinct from his, himself. Now, are such claims that God is his wisdom, and consequently that God is law, mere metaphors? Are these figures of speech? such that we might compare them, for example, to the stately house or the flourishing tree in that earlier passage I read. Or alternatively, can definitive literal propositions about the divine nature be justifiably formed? There is perhaps something just a tiny bit transgressive, perhaps, about comparing God to a basement or a root, although it is clear enough that such images imply an intuitive perception of similarity in dissimilars, and as Aristotle reminds us, it is a great thing to be a master of metaphor. The similarity of God to a basement, the foundation of a dwelling is of course concealment from view. To propose that God is himself in some sense actually law or wisdom is not on the same metaphorical footing. In question 93 uh, of, the, of the first part of the Summa Theologica on the names of God, Aquinas asks in Article 3 whether all names applied to God must needs be metaphorical or whether uh, some can be applied in a literal sense. Aquinas argues that true affirmative propositions can be formed about God. This assertion depends upon drawing a distinction between signification in reality, what it is in itself, in say, and what it is for us, pronobis, that is to say, in idea. God, as considered in himself, is altogether one and simple. Yet our intellect knows him by different conceptions because it cannot see him as he is in himself, in say. Hence, diverse names are ascribed to God. God is one, God is good, infinite, just, and so on. While it is possible to affirm diverse essential qualities or predicates, our intellect knows that in reality, one and the same 
simple being corresponds to these conceptions. The perfect unity of God, this is the lower quotation on, on the screen, the perfect unity of God requires that what are manifold and divided in others should exist in him simply and unitedly. Thus it comes about that he is one in reality and yet multiple in idea because our intellect apprehends him in a manifold manner as things represent him. Consequently, the plurality of predicate and subject in uh, the example that we're uh, exploring with Hooker, law uh, and God, God is law, represents the plurality of idea. Nonetheless, for the intellect, for us, pronobis, this plurality represents unity by composition, that is, by predication. God is law. For Hooker, the primordial wisdom is that law which God hath eternally purposed himself in all his works to observe. This law is the highest wellspring and fountain, uh, a Plotinian metaphor. Uh, that is to say, fountain of all species of law. Hooker agrees with Aquinas when he speaks of the radical simplicity of God in himself, when he states that God is one, or rather very oneness and mere unity, having nothing but itself in itself and not consisting as all things do besides God of many things. Of the divine simplicity, Hooker says, our soundest knowledge is to know that we know him not as indeed he is, neither can we know him, and our safest eloquence concerning him is our silence. When we confess without confession that his glory is inexplicable, his greatness above our capacity to reach, he is above and we upon earth, and therefore it behooveth our words to be wary and few. As first original cause, the first eternal law has her seat in the bosom of God. Um, simultaneously, this original eternal law in its unity contains within itself a plurality of multiple derivative species as law. As offspring of God, all things which God hath made are in him as effects in their highest cause. He likewise actually is in them the assistance and influence of his deity is their life. And so it is with original law and its diverse derivative laws. Booker then proceeds to distinguish between a first and a second eternal law. The latter, the second eternal law, is the ordering voice of the divine wisdom. Law as God's utterance, proceeding from the ineffable unity of the first eternal law and comprising within it all derivative species of law which participate the eternal law as discrete emanations ordered dispositively in hierarchical procession. While the first eternal law is the original self-constituting divine source as it remains ineffably simple at unity within itself as God's very oneness. By law eternal, the learned for the most part do understand the order, not which God has eternally purposed himself in all his works to observe, but rather that which himself, he himself has set down as expedient to be kept by all creatures. Um, according to the several conditions wherewith he has endued them. All things therefore, which are as they ought to be, 
are conformed to this second eternal law. And even those things which to this eternal law are not conformable are notwithstanding in some sort ordered by the first eternal law. It is the second eternal law whose voice is the harmony of the world as distinct from that prior law whose place is in the divine bosom. The second eternal law does not work in infinitely but correspondently to that end for which it works. Even all things Christos, Hooker says, in most decent and comely sort. And in that, his invocation of the language of, of uh, comeliness in Greek, Christos, or suaviter in Latin, he's referring to that passage that I read to you earlier from the eighth chapter of the Book of Wisdom. Hooker's account of the eternal law as simultaneously unity in radical simplicity and participation of that unity by a multiplicity of derivative forms of law recapitulates an ontology of causality set out by Proclus in his Elements of Theology, um, whereby every effect remains in its cause, proceeds from it, and reverts upon it. For Proclus, the totality of reality beneath the one, or the good itself, is structured by remaining, that is to say abiding in the principle, by going out in procession, and by return through conversion. All reality um, is in the one, proceeds from the one, and returns to the one. That is to say, it is converted back towards its source when it achieves its proper good. In Hooker's formulation, this double motion of procession and return is remarkably similar. As Hooker puts it, every effect doth after a sort contain, at leastwise resemble the cause from which it proceedeth. All things in the world are said in some sort to seek the highest and to covet more or less the participation of God himself. Hooker anchors this elaborate exposition and defense of the Elizabethan religious settlement in a metaphysical theory of law which itself assumes a Neoplatonic ontology of participation in the Proclean tradition. All things are therefore partakers of God. They are his offspring. His influence is in them and the personal wisdom of God is for that very cause said to excel in nimbleness or agility to appear into all intellectual, pure, and subtle spirits, to go through all, and to reach uh, unto everything that which is. All things which God in their times and seasons hath brought forth were eternally and before all times in God, as a work unbegun is in the artificer, which afterward bringeth it unto effect. Therefore, Whatsoever we do behold now in this present world, it was enwrapped within the bowels of the divine mercy. There's another metaphor for you. Written in the book of eternal wisdom and held in the hands of omnipotent power, the first foundations of the world being as yet unlaid. Hooker's apophatic emphasis on law as it is written in the book of the eternal wisdom, having her seat in the bosom of God, raises doubt about whether God can be named literally as either wisdom or law. The extraordinary metaphor of the bowels of divine mercy intimates that creation may be viewed as tantamount to a divine excretion. It is possibly 
it is possible to speak significantly. Uh, is it possible to speak significantly then about the first eternal law, or must we remain silent? Or is Hooker confined to figurative language? After all, of God's very oneness, says Hooker, we confess without confession that his glory is inexplicable, his greatness above our capacity to reach. And as Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite asserts in his treatise on the divine names, of him there is neither name nor can one be found of him. Ambrose of Milan, on the other hand, maintains ambivalently that some names there are which express evidently the property of the divinity and some which express the clear truth of the divine majesty. But others there are which are applied to God metaphorically by way of similitude. Aquinas asks whether all names are applied to God solely in a metaphorical sense or whether any can be applied literally. The names of creatures are applied to God metaphorically as when we say God is a stone or a lion or the like. After some discussion, Aquinas eventually concludes that some names of God can be applied in an affirmative, literal sense. There are some names which signify these perfections flowing from God to creatures in such a way that the imperfect way in which creatures receive the divine perfection is part of the very signification of the name itself, as stone signifies a material being, and names of this kind can be applied to God only in a metaphorical sense. Other names, however, express these perfections absolutely, without any such mode of participation being part of their signification, as for example the words being, good, living, and the like, and such names can be literally applied to God. Law and wisdom are such names as express an essential property of the divinity. The perfect unity of God requires that what are manifold and divided in others should exist in him simply and unitedly. Um, this is also Thomas Aquinas. Thus it comes about that he is one in reality and yet multiple in idea, because our intellect apprehends him in a manifold manner as things represent him. And so it is with the wisdom of God read out, as it were, in the manifold species of law, according to Hooker. Now for Hooker, the second eternal law, whose voice is the harmony of the world, the second eternal law comprises the manifold divine order as kept by all God's creatures, according to the several conditions wherewith he hath endued them. This law has a variety of names, depending on the different orders of creatures, subject to the one divine government. The two principal derivative uh, species are the second eternal law, of the, of the second eternal law are first, the natural law, and second, the revealed law of scripture, the latter sometimes termed by Hooker, Hooker the divine law, as Thomas does in, in uh, the Summa, not to be confused with the eternal law itself. The entire system of the laws comprised within this second eternal law thus expresses the Proclean twofold motion of created procession from and return to the epistrophe. Uh, the return to the original unity of the eternal law as expressed by this primary distinction between the natural and the revealed orders of law. Each of these two primary kinds, natural law and divinely revealed law, is further participated by multiple derivative and dependent forms. Um, 
The natural law by way of a further procession comprises in turn subordinate species of law, which govern irrational natural agents as well as the rational. The law governing the rational creatures is distinguished further into the law celestial, which orders the angels, and the law of reason, sometimes identified simply as the natural law per se, which orders rational humankind. All of these subspecies represent the outward unfolding or procession ad extra of the second eternal law, reaching from one end to the other mightily. Now that law, which is, which as it is laid up in the bosom of God, they call eternal, receiveth according unto the different kinds of things which are subject unto it, different and sundry kinds of names. That part of it which ordereth natural agents, we call usually nature's law. That which angels do clearly behold and without any swerving observe is a law celestial and heavenly. The law of reason, that which bindeth creatures reasonable in this world and with which by reason they may most plainly perceive themselves bound, that which bindeth them and is not known by any, but by any special rev revelation from God, divine law. Human law, um, Human law, that which out of the law, either of reason or of God, men probably gathering to be expedient, they make it a law. On the converse side of the second eternal law, the law of God's special revelation, the revealed law of the scriptures, presupposes the disorder introduced into the cosmos by the fall and is provided in order to secure final restoration or return of the creation to its original condition of unity under and within the primordial first eternal law. Hooker's distinction between these two uh, summa genera of natural law and uh, divine law corresponds to the cosmic procession and return, but also reflects the epistemological distinction of a twofold knowledge of God, a duplex cognitio dei, namely by the light of supernatural revelation on the one side and by the natural light of reason on the other. In addition to the book of the eternal wisdom, there are also a book of nature and a book of scripture, three books corresponding to three genres of law. There are moreover composite species of law, such as human positive law and the law of, uh, of nations, for example, the Jus Gentium, which derive from a conscious pragmatic reflection upon the general principles contained in the natural law. These additional derivative species of law are viewed by Hooker here following Augustine as a consequence of human sin presupposing the fall and like the divine law they also constitute a corrective to the disorder introduced by Adam's disobedience. Augustine speaks of such law as a remedy of sin, the remedium peccati. Throughout this complex legal discourse Hooker presents the human creature as the image of God, the imago Dei, at the focal point of the cosmic drama of procession and return to the original fount of order, established in the divine simplicity of the first eternal law. In the second book of the Ecclesiastical Polity, Hooker addresses the definition of the limits of the authority of scripture. The ways of wisdom are of sundry kinds, so her manner of teaching is not merely one and the same. Some things she openeth by the sacred books of scripture, some things by the glorious works of nature, with some things she inspireth them from above by spiritual influence, 
In some things she leadeth and traineth them only by worldly experience and practice. We may not so in any one special kind admire her that we disgrace her in any other, but let all her ways be according unto their place and degree adored. Uh, as an aside, I fear I may never see this icon again. This is the uh, image of Our Lady, the Seat of Wisdom, which is in the main apse at the east end of uh, the Basilica Hagia Sophia in uh, Constantinople, as I like to call it. Uh, it has been converted back into a mosque. And I suppose, if it's to serve as a mosque, that these images may well be hidden away. We, it remains to be seen what will happen. As intellectual natures, mortals share the desire of the angels for an infinite good in which alone such a nature can be finally satisfied. Then are we happy, therefore, when fully we enjoy God as an object wherein the powers of our souls are satisfied with everlasting delight, so that although we be men, yet by being unto God united, we live, as it were, the life of God. This is Hooker's formulation of the doctrine of theosis, or divinization, to live the life of God. Yet, of such perfection, capable we are not in this life, for while we are in the world, subject we are unto sundry imperfections, griefs of body, defects of mind, yea, the best things we do are painful. The predicament of the human nature is to be of a mixed uh, composition, partaking of both an intellectual nature shared with the angels and the physical shared with the irrational necessary agents. For Hooker, therefore, for Hooker there can be no natural overcoming of the hiatus between a natural desire for divine perfection and a complete natural incapacity to achieve that end desired. This emphasis upon human depravity brings out the reform side of Hooker's thinking. Uh, this is a lovely image. Uh, the, um, uh, the Gipkin diptych, uh, which is, you can go and view it in the Guildhall, uh, belongs to the Society of Antiquaries in London. It depicts the outdoor pulpit uh, in, at the northeast corner of St. Paul's Cathedral, which was demolished in the 1640s, uh, but was a huge popular entertainment, one might say. Uh, more people attended a sermon at Paul's Cross than perhaps even attended the theater, according to some accounts. Uh, and there you can see uh, members of the guilds of London seated uh, right in front of the pulpit. Uh, behind them, the corporation of the city, the baron, the alderman, uh, in their red uh, robes, the high court judges next to them, and above them we see King James I, Queen Anne and Prince Henry, uh, also uh, various bishops and nobles uh, seated in the, um, the good seats uh, up there above the unwashed. <laughs> um, View, O King, how these wall creepers have made me work for chimney sweepers, is that little white inscription you see uh, going up uh, is my arrow there? Um, Paul's, of course, was was destroyed in the Great Fire, um, and um, Sir Christopher Wren built the replacement. But the place where this pulpit stood is still marked in London. So if you ever go to London, go into Paul's Churchyard, and you can see where this this site was. It's uh, an important place in the narrative of the emerging public sphere. 
in uh, the history of England. Okay, um, the light of nature is never able uh, to find out any way of obtaining the reward of bliss but by performing exactly the duties and works of righteousness. From salvation, therefore, and life, all flesh being excluded this way, behold, how the wisdom of God hath revealed a way mystical and supernatural, a way directing unto the same end of life by a course which groundeth itself upon the guiltiness of sin, and through sin, desert of condemnation and death. The exitus reditus structure, the, the structure of emanation and return, uh, in this Hooker's generic division of law in book one, shows that Hooker had read his Aquinas uh, on law very closely, as numerous scholars have noted. Hooker's distinction between the first and second eternal laws constitutes nonetheless a significant departure from the Thomist scholastic model. The effect of the distinction between these two aspects of the eternal law is simultaneously to widen and to decrease the distance between the creator lawgiver and the created cosmos. In addition, the distance between the two principal aspects uh, of the second eternal law, that is to say between uh, the natural law and the divinely revealed law, is most pronounced in Hooker's account of soteriology. The final return to God of all creation can only be by a way mystical and supernatural. Um, in his notes toward a fragment on the doctrine of predestination, um, a manuscript uh, in the library of Trinity College Dublin, Hooker distinguishes between two species of divine governance. So there is a duplex gubernatio dei to correspond to a duplex cognitio dei. Government is that work of God whereby he sustains created things and disposes all things to the end which he naturally chooses, that is, the greatest good which, given the law of creation, can be elicited. For given the law of creation is the rule of all, it was not fitting that creation be violated through those things which follow from creation. So God does nothing by his government which offends against that which he has framed and ratified by the very act of creation. The government of God is general over all, special over rational creatures. There are two forms of government, duplex gubernatio dei, that which would have been had free creation not lost its way, and that which is now when it has lost its way. This passage reveals uh, the soteriological principle underlying the generic division of laws. On the one side are laws governing the order of an unfallen creation, and among these laws Hooker includes the law of nature insofar as it governs irrational and non-voluntary natural agents. This again is a significant departure from the usual more restricted sense of natural law as an intellectual habit of the soul, that is to say, the summa ratio, as it is present and known to rational creatures. To conclude, for Hooker, the form of law to be kept by all creatures, according to their several conditions, is comprised within three highest forms, the eternal law, the natural law, and the divine law where the latter two species are understood as comprehended within the eternal law, uh, in, and specifically within the second eternal law, and yet nonetheless are distinct, both in their operation 
and in our knowledge of them. Together, these highest forms constitute a comprehensive division of the many diverse kinds of law. To understand their derivation from the original unity of the first eternal law is to gain critical insight into the underlying ontological assumptions of Hooker's argument, and moreover provides a vital instrument for interpreting the manner of Hooker's reconciliation of Neoplatonic ontology of participation with a reformed soteriology. Viewed from the standpoint of their divine principle of origin, that is to say, the first eternal law where the being of God is the law to his working, these three highest forms of law may be considered as simply one, one in their source. The predication of law to God is not metaphorical for Hooker. Law is a perfection of the divine being and could consequently be affirmed literally so long as we understand that what God is in reality is not to be confused with what he is in idea. Our intellect apprehends in the manifold manner of the expression of the voice of his wisdom. Viewed from below, as it were, from our human standpoint, uh, the original unity takes on the aspect of articulated multiplicity of kinds, which nonetheless all participate and all proceed from the undivided unity that is their common source. This account of the simultaneous unity and diversity of law in its multiple species lies at the heart of Hooker's vision of law as an expression of the divine governance. Who the guide of nature, but only the God of nature? In him we live, move, and are. Those things which nature is said to do are by divine art performed, using nature as an instrument. Nor is there any such art or knowledge divine in nature herself working, but in the guide of nature's work. Hooker begins with metaphors of the nature of law in general, law as the root of a flourishing tree, as the foundation of a stately house, law as a wellspring or fountain, all hidden in the bosom of the earth, and he proceeds to identify these underlying hidden sources with the primordial wisdom of God. This wisdom is in turn presented metaphorically as hidden in the bosom of God, in the bowels of the divine mercy, and manifest in the voice of cosmic harmony. In effect, we mix these metaphors. What is hidden in the bosom of the earth is in, actually, is in actuality hidden in the bosom of God. The conclusion for Hooker is that God, in some literal sense, is law. His law is not distinct from himself, and therefore it becomes possible to move beyond metaphor to a more literal affirmation. This predication must be interpreted cautiously. It is composite in form, but refers the theological understanding to an essential simplicity, the ineffable unity and simplicity of all law in the divine self-regulating activity. The being of law, the being of God, is a kind of law to his working, and on this manifold, and on this working, a manifold diversity of laws depend. So that is the end of my formal lecture. Before proceeding to um, the conversation, I have been asked to draw to your attention a bit of further reading, uh, which I have done here on a couple of slides. The first slide contains um, 
three uh, useful sources for people who want to study Hooker further. The, the accepted critical edition of the complete works of Richard Hooker is the beautiful Folger Library edition. Uh, it's horrendously expensive. Uh, some of it, I think, even now is out of print, but if you can obtain one of these, it's the authoritative uh, version of the Ecclesiastical Polity, and it's the one that, uh, particularly if you were a graduate student or a professor, it's the one that is commonly used for citation. Um, it's the critical edition. There is a new critical edition um, edited by Steve McGrade, published by Oxford University Press, which has modern spelling. I have very mixed feelings about the modern spelling. I, 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 I can see its utility. Uh, Hooker's spelling is extremely idiosyncratic and can be irritating at times, but it has a certain beauty and it takes one back to this alien world of thought of the late Elizabethan time. Um, and then, um, I'm tooting my own horn here, but uh, a companion to Richard Hooker contains 20 essays uh, by some fairly distinguished scholars, including Rowan Williams, uh, who, also, who wrote the foreword, uh, Dermot McCullough, uh, David Neelands of Trinity College Toronto, um, I, I, I hesitate to, to, to name names because I might leave somebody out, but there's some quite distinguished pieces of work in here. So if you're interested in looking at some criticism on Hooker, that's a good place to do it. Um, and finally, here are a few books about Hooker that might interest you. Uh, Richard Hooker's Doctrine of the Royal Supremacy is my doctoral thesis at the University of Oxford. Um, Richard Hooker and the Reformer and Platonist is uh, a book length uh, elaboration of the argument I made this evening. Um, there's a book by Richard Ho about Richard Hooker by Brad Littlejohn that came out very recently that uh, contains an account of his life and thought from different angles, which might interest you. Um, Hooker's relationship to the Reformation is a vexed topic of critical study at the present, and that's the main focus of the top right-hand uh, volume. Um, on th at the bottom left, I've got a couple of books that are um, um, about Paul's cross, that image that I showed you, um, which I've published recently. They've been the, the focus of my more recent research. Um, Hooker preached at Paul's cross. Sadly, we don't have the sermon that he preached there, but um, uh, there is an article uh, in the 2014 volume by David Neelands of Toronto that uh, explains uh, um, what uh, what the sermon that Hooker delivered was about and, and uh, gives an account of it. And then there are two more books there at the bottom right um, about the interpretation of Hooker and his reception later on. Um, Michael Bryden was a doctoral student at Oxford supervised by Dermot McCullough and uh, he gives a very interesting account of the reception of Hooker mainly in the 17th century. Um, Hooker was uh, admired by Charles I and by even King James II um, and by John Locke. I mean, it, there's something really quite remarkable about the breadth of people in the 17th century who found something in Hooker to grab their attention. And then um, this book by Nigel Atkinson talks about um, the, what's the so-called three-legged st stool of uh, scripture, tradition, and reason. Um, and it's a good read. So that's it for, for the more, uh, for the further reading, and uh, I suppose I should hand it over now to Robert Corwell.
All right. Thank you so much for this really engaging, very interesting look at a sort of counterintuitive, uh, perhaps, uh, view of of uh, this seminal Anglican thinker who's uh, who's got these Thomistic roots. Uh, we've had several questions about these, about this, uh, the relationship between uh, Hooker and and uh, and Thomas Aquinas. Elizabeth asks, "What we know about uh, about uh, Hooker studying?" Uh, about Thomas, did he do it in, in corporate college? Did, do we have record of of him and many others reading carefully the works of Thomas? It's quite clear for anybody who studies the laws of ecclesiastical polity that Hooker was an assiduous student of Thomas Aquinas. He only explicitly quotes Aquinas about half a dozen times, um, mainly in the context of this discussion in book one about the nature of law. Um, he is critical of Thomas on the doctrine of grace uh, in a sermon that he preached. Uh, so that's the only negative take on Thomas that we find in Hooker. But I think that the number of times that Hooker quotes Thomas is not really an adequate measure because I think, uh, I think as David Neelans has pointed out in his scholarship, Hooker imitates Thomas so that the whole structure of the argument in book one shows a profound debt to the angelic doctor. And it's more in the imitation of the structure, the hierarchical logic, the lex divinitatis, uh, as Thomas would express it, uh, in incorporated into Hooker's argument about a law that, that question 96 of the uh, prima secundae is, is the part of the, the summa that, that Hooker is looking at most closely of all, I think. Um, so it's true that that uh, the evidence of Thomas's influence is has to be gleaned in some sense by examining the structure of the argument. And in fact, Hooker's um, references to the Platonic ontology, the Neoplatonic ontology, uh, are also indicators of that influence. Hooker also quotes Pseudo Dionysius quite a number of times. Uh, both in book one and in book eight, where he's interested in uh, understanding hierarchy in relationship to the crown. And his use of, of uh, Pseudo Dionysius also shows that he was familiar with Thomas's argument. Uh, Pseudo Dionysius, I think, for Hooker is probably mediated by Aquinas. But the, uh, the connection that I make with Proclus is not explicit, but it seems to me that the way in which Hooker formulates his account of um, emanation and return uh, and his formulation of the way in which causes dwell in their effects and effects dwell in their causes is so obviously influenced by that ancient tradition of uh, Neoplatonism that by pointing out similarities with Proclus is a way of communicating that heritage uh, in his thought. Thank you. And and before we talk about some of his other Neoplatonic sources, because we have a question on that, pressing a little bit further on, on the Thomistic uh, engagement, we have a question from Joshua who asks, uh, Professor Kirby, you said that Hooker's departure from Aquinas leads him both to widen and to decrease the gap between human nature and divine law. Could you elaborate a little further on how that- oh, yeah, this, this, is, this is a very good and a very difficult question, but uh, I thank uh, Joshua for that. 
Is it Joshua Holman by any chance? <laughs> uh, no. No, no. No. Okay. Just wondered. I. I. I um, uh, in any case, um, it's. Uh, the apophatic emphasis in Hooker is very marked. When he says God is very oneness, and he identifies the first eternal law with that ineffable oneness, he removes the eternal law from any linkage to the, the lex divinitatis as it works in the world. I think that the, the crucial point here is that he, that he draws a distinction between first and second eternal law is crucial to understanding the way in which he increases the gap between creator and creation. Uh, to distinguish a first eternal law from a second eternal law, which is not a distinction that Thomas makes uh, in his treatise on law, is to guard the, uh, um, the ineffable simplicity of God. Uh, which, and one could argue that, that even though Thomas doesn't do this in his treatise on law, question three of the Summa in some sense is that argument that the radical simplicity of God places God altogether above and beyond creatures and above predication. Um, but at the same time, because the whole of the creation in all of its manifold forms and all of the laws you might say that govern uh, the created order are comprised within the second eternal law means that because of the intimate connection of the second eternal law to the first eternal law, uh, you can see that, that the whole of the creation, as it were, is understood to be um, taken up, in some sense, right into the interior divine life. And so that's what I mean by saying that there's, they are closer. Uh, they are further apart, um, God and creation are further apart in the sense that this comes out in the soteriology where Hooker says that um, heaven cannot be won by merit. Heaven can only be won passively through a justifying faith. And therefore, this is, this is the Protestant Hooker speaking. This is, this is the Hooker who sees uh, salvation as something working entirely from the divine side. At, at the level of justification, and that um, grace Hooker maintains, and this is in the passage where he's somewhat critical of Aquinas, cannot become a habit of the soul uh, in its primary form. But you might say in a secondary form, uh, in, in, you might say, the acquisition of the theological virtues, grace can become a habit, but that he wants to distinguish between a primary grace which is non-habitual and passive and alien attaches his account of grace very much to Luther's account. If you read Hooker's sermon on justification uh, and the foundation of faith, his position comes out very strongly almost uh, uh, as a replication of Luther's position on the radical passivity of justification. So that, that at the same time he says though that work, good works of course are necessary but there's the uh, the the habitual righteousness must be something secondary and derivative, um, rather the way in which uh, 
the natural law in its many species is secondary and derivative with respect to the eternal law. So there's a kind of an analogy there between the soteriological argument and the ontological argument about law. I, that's probably not a satisfying answer. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we, we've, we, we want to make a turn here in a minute to some of the more reform contexts, but real fast to talk about the, some of these platonic uh, sources. We have a, a question from Denis. Uh, thank you for this highly informative talk. My question pertains to Hooker's sources. You enlightened us on the relationship between Hooker's theology to Aquinas, Proclus, and the, uh, and the Corpus Dionysiacum. To what extent was the Corpus Dionysiacum a source for some of Hooker's use of Proclean principles of each for eternal law? Erasmus yeah. and Luther, albeit, had different critiques of Dionysius were well known by them, and Erasmus reminds us that William Grosen made his uh, suspicion suspicion of Dionysius known at St. Paul's Cross. Was there a reformed hermeneutics of suspicion at work behind Hooker's reading of Pseudo-Dionysius? Well, there, there was a reformed suspicion of Pseudo-Dionysius, whoever he was, since it's both Calvin and Luther, they're echoing the, the 15th century um, uh, smoking out of the identity of Pseudo-Dionysius by Lorenzo Valla and others who recognized for the first time that nobody quoted Pseudo-Dionysius before the 6th century. And because they're thinking historically uh, by that time, um, they work out that, that uh, Pseudo-Dionysius could not have been the interlocutor of Paul on the Areopagus. Mm. Um, now, um, in the Patrologia Graeca, we still find Pseudo-Dionysius as the first text uh, included in that series. And that seems to be um, evidence that there are, there are diehards who just want to continue to view Dionysius as um, that contemporary of Paul. But by the end of the 15th century, uh, scholars had recognized that this was an untenable view. And I don't think Hooker uh, queried that. I think that he probably accepted that, although he doesn't pronounce on it uh, anywhere that I have noticed. And his reading of, of Dionysius is not peculiar because um, there are other reformed scholastics, like Peter Martyr Vermeule, for example, who uh, is a very careful student of, of uh, pseudo-Dionysius, uh, particularly of the ecclesiastical hierarchy in his writings. Um, now Vermeule is a kind of a special case uh, because he was um, thoroughly trained in the canon law uh, before he um, went to Naples and discovered the writings of Luther through his association with Juan de Valdez and the, uh, the spirituali there. But um, in one has to remember that the curriculum at Oxford was extremely conservative and the Aristotle, for example, was the core, Aristotle's organon was the core of the curriculum for undergraduates in Hooker's day. Hooker's tutor, John Reynolds, um, this is by way of an aside, I'm, I'm moving away from the question, but I'll come back to it. Uh, John Reynolds was the originator of the great revision of the Oxford curriculum in the direction towards Aristotle's rhetoric. But it's interesting, at Oxford, uh, you know, the story is, you know, um, how many Oxonians does it take to change a light bulb? 
change. Oh, yes. <laughs> the only answer. <laughs> um, to change at Oxford meant um, substituting Aristotle's rhetoric for Aristotle's logic. It's not very radical. <laughs> um, so Aristotle is still king in, in the curriculum, and that's, that's, that's the atmosphere in which Hooker was an undergraduate. Um, and Hooker's Greek, Hooker has good Greek, he's got Hebrew and Latin. He was at the, uh, the MIT of the 16th century, Corpus Christi College, Oxford. It was a really intellectually extremely serious place. It still is for classics, uh, but at Corpus he would have been trained rigorously in the trilingual, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and he mastered all three. Uh, his approach to the tradition of the Prisca Theologia is itself very conservative in a, in, a, in a scholastic vein in that he's deeply immersed in the writings of the fathers, uh, the Cappadocians as well as Augustine. Uh, he's, uh, he, um, his approach to um, a locus of uh, inquiry is often to begin with scripture, look at what the fathers said, you know, what did Ambrose have to say about this? Uh, what did the awful act of Ochrid have to say? I mean, the, he goes into a fairly uh, uh, detailed analysis of patristic authorities. Then what did other philosophers in the Middle Ages say about it? And finally, he will make his pronouncement. There's a very strong uh, um, methodological bias in favor of the tradition that shows his training to be scholastic. And so his knowledge of um, the Neoplatonic sources is not surprising, I think, given that, that training. Um, he only quotes Proclus twice, but Proclus is clearly on his radar screen. I think that uh, the question asked by, was it Denny who asked the question? Um, that that it was the case that his his reading of Proclus was most likely filtered through his reading of Pseudo-Dionysius, hmm. the Christian Proclus, as he's sometimes called. Indeed. And so here's a question that was germinating in my mind, and we also have a question from an attendee, that some of the big impulse of the Reformation was to be suspicious of this sort of natural theo uh, uh, philosophical, theological speculation, and to see it as Luther saw it as a kind of workshop of idols. Uh, Richard asked the this question. This is a caricature which I have no time for. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe it's too broad strokes. Richard well, asked it, it, the question. It's reductionist. It, it seems to me that that view of the Reformation um, it, it can't be sustained. If you read Kelvin's Institutes, this, the first book uh, is a sustained exploration of patristic orthodoxy in Christology and Trinity. Um, Kelvin has enormous respect for the, the traditional patristic theology. Yeah. And with that goes, of course, the, you know, the, the great tradition of natural theology uh, yeah. that's inherited from the fathers. Yeah. I think this I, I this is a Bartian travesty uh, of of reading of the Reformation. Hmm. I think. I guess I was thinking of the contrast between this and Luther's lectures on Galatians. But but the question here from Richard is about about sin, Hooker and sin. Uh, Richard asks, what is Hooker's conception of sin? 
uh, that doesn't seem to come total up. Total depravity. In their, what's it? Total depravity. Hooker hmm. thinks that we are little better than wild beasts uh, in our um, inclinations, and that we depend utterly on what he calls the way mystical and supernatural to overcome uh, that. And it's only by a, a, you might say, a divine intervention, by a gracious intervention, that there can be any hope of coming out of that condition of fallenness. He, I think Hooker's position on fallen humanity is very close to Luther's and Calvin's, both. And mm -hmm. that, I think, is quite compatible with a high doctrine of natural law, because in some sense he, in, with, his, with the way in which he schematizes the system of laws, uh, the order of redemption and the order of nature are quite distinct, so that the hierarchical logic that governs um, our place in the natural order of things in the world is um, affirmed, but at the same time you might say the relationship to, in that sense you could say there's continuity of the creation with its source, but at the same time you might say as far as the economy of redemption is concerned, there is a break. Um, um, a, a direction between the human condition and the divine condition that can only be overcome by, um, well, in some sense, God's predestinating activity from before the foundation of the world. Hooker has a strong view in his account of predestination of God's foreknowledge uh, of sel the, the salvific act from all eternity. Uh, it's 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 a position on predestination, which again I would say is close to Calvin's. But at the same time, I think when you look at the question of predestination, Calvin and Aquinas are actually quite close together. Uh, that uh, they on, on that doctrine, at least. Okay, so, but they that's interesting in that sense that Calvin comes up with a very different, it would seem, uh, ecclesiology than than Hooker. We have a question on, 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 this, on this point. Uh, the question go, runs, uh, while your presentation references Hook, uh, Hooker's reformed soteriology or doctrine of salvation, it wasn't clear to me the re relationship between Hooker's metaphysics and his defense of the Anglican ecclesiastical settlement. So he's, how, do, how does then he, he turn this into a, a new kind of ecclesiological project? Well, that's a great question. I think that ecclesiologically, he has a, and this I think actually he shares with Calvin, hmm. a very clear um, notion of the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Um, and the visible church is for him, uh, to use his precise language, a human politic society. It is, it, in fact, it's a reference to Aristotle. He quotes Aristotle's politics in the first book when he in, introduces this idea, koinonia politicae, and the church is a koinonia politicae. It's a human institution in its earthly, visible aspect. But the church is also a mystical body, and Hooker is very keen to um, 
distinguish very clearly between the church's mystical character and its, its visible human character. And in that sense, you could say, if one were to map that onto the, uh, uh, the system of laws, there's a sense in which the church exists in the realm of the divine law, and there's a sense in which the church uh, subsists in the realm of the natural law. And the church that subsists in the realm of the natural law as a human institution has parliament and the crown as its governing power. And so Hooker launches a very spirited defense of Elizabeth's headship of the church on the ground that, um, and here he invokes Aristotle, that Aristotle claims that the end of political society is to promote the virtue of the citizen and the way in which the Commonwealth of England promotes the virtue of her citizens is through the agency of the church. So the church becomes the means whereby Aristotle's um, virtuous community can come into existence. And therefore the church is, is uh, subject to the governance of parliament. And so parliament legislates the Book of Common Prayer, the bishops sit in the House of Lords, um, the corporations of the cathedrals and the colleges are all subject to um, uh, government and royal control. The, 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 um, the ecclesiology is one which emphasizes um, the, human, the human character of the church as a political society. And actually, I think it's a mistake to think that Hooker is distant from Calvin in holding that view, because if you look at Calvin's Institutes in Book 4, Calvin regards the Commonwealth as one of the three external means of grace. Uh, that the Commonwealth, together with the Church and the sacraments, are the way in which God governs the political world. And <sighs> Calvin uh, like Hooker maintains that there are two essential marks of the church, uh, the right preaching of the word and the, the true administration of the sacraments. Calvin does not insist that ecclesiastical discipline based on the New Testament should be a mark of the church. So in that respect, Hooker's Puritan opponents in England who want a scriptural discipline based on the New Testament are actually further from Calvin in their ecclesiology than Hooker is. And this is, I, you know, there's a certain cognitive dissonance to that from what we've come to expect about uh, um, the position of Hooker with respect to the Protestants, but Hooker and Calvin are actually on the same page in terms of ecclesiological first principles, in terms of their distinction between a visible and an invisible church. Um, the Puritan argument, uh, the argument that was made, for instance, by Walter Travers, who was Hooker's opposite number at the Temple Church, uh, was to insist upon a scripturally based discipline of presbyters. And so the whole Presbyterian uh, movement within the church was inspired by uh, the view that there are three marks of the church, yeah. word, sacrament, and ecclesiastical discipline grounded in the New Testament. Um, that's not Calvin's position at all. And um, in, in, it seems to me arguable that Hooker is uh, very respectful of Calvin as a theologian and of his, his principles. Hooker's, um, this is straying off a little bit, but just to illustrate the point 
Uh, further, Hooker's um, account of um, sacramental presence is virtually identical with what Calvin argues in, um, uh, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, hmm. an instrumental realism. Hmm. Um, and, well, I don't know, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a wild goose chase to, to, to go down that, that, that line of argument, but uh, in wow. any case, there are all sorts of reasons for thinking that Hooker is respectful of Calvin. Uh, and 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 his theological position, and, and so maybe we have time for just one more question. Uh, moving into the the some of uh, Hooker's enormous impact uh, and, and and legacy, it's it's pretty clear he's had such an impact on the English Church. Uh, we have a question about uh, whether or not there's some reflection of of Hooker's impact upon the continent, uh, the source of German. Uh, 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 thinkers. Uh, Christine asks, uh, thank you, Professor Kirby, for your lecture. I am interested in the global circulation of theology in the early modern period. Can you please say something about Hooker's context in relationship to the German and Swiss reformations? Um, what well, influence yes. may he had upon the continent? And also, uh, are there any women scholars who are working on Richard Hooker that you could refer us to? Well, yes, indeed. I can. I, to start with the last first, Deborah Sugar, who's a professor at the University of uh, California in Los Angeles, uh, is a very distinguished Hooker scholar. Um, and she's published extensively on the Renaissance and 17th century literature. Um, Deborah contributed an essay to the companion to Richard Hooker on Hooker's account of certainty, assurance, um, and Hooker's preached a very long sermon in, in, at Paul's cross in, in the 16th century. If you didn't preach for two hours, people were disappointed. Those were the days for preachers. But her, uh, her, Hooker preached this very long sermon on certainty and um, um, the finest treatment of, of that sermon that I know of is Deborah Sugar's essay. Um, and it's, it's full of interest. So I would recommend that. Now just remind me, the first part of the question was the continent, right? Um, Hooker's Dr. Grossvater, if I can put it that way, was Peter Martyr Vermeule. Um, Vermeule came to England at the invitation of Thomas Cranmer in 1548 and became Regis Professor of Divinity uh, and a canon of Christchurch, Oxford. Uh, Vermeule is uh, a great Italian theologian. He was born in Florence. He was um, at the time that he left Italy, uh, he was the prior of Luca, and he had been abbot of Spoleto. He was climbing the greasy pole of ecclesiastical preferment. Some people say that Peter Martyr Vermilia, if he if he'd stayed with Rome, might have even become pope. I mean, he was that he was papabile, but uh, he it met Juan de Valdez when he was visiting Naples, and and he was influenced by the books of Luther that were given to him by Valdez, and he eventually became a Protestant. And while he was in Lucca as prior, he set up a reform seminary. And when in 1542, the, um, uh, the Inquisition was set up, he was one of their first targets. Vermili, along with Emmanuel Tremelius and uh, Sebastian Castellio were chased out of Italy, and he never went back. Uh, he went first to Strasbourg, where he met Martin Bootser, and then eventually to England. His main disciple 
when he was at Oxford was a, um, a young scholar by the name of John Jewell, who followed Vermeule to Zurich when Vermeule left England in 1553. And um, when Jewel came back from Zurich um, at the accession of Queen Elizabeth I, he was appointed Bishop of Salisbury. And Jewel paid for Hooker to attend Corpus Christi College, Oxford. Jewel was Hooker's patron. So I, the reason I, I, I mention that, there's a kind of a genealogy uh, that connects Hooker to the Zurich Reformation uh, through his patron, John Jewel. Um, the most important theological textbook in Oxford uh, in the second half of the 16th century and the first half of the 17th century was not in fact Calvin, but it was Vermeule's Commonplaces, which were translated from Latin into English. Vermeule didn't speak English. Uh, he married a nun on his way north. She spoke Flemish. He spoke Italian. The only language they had in common was Latin. Um, when they... Uh, first arrived at Oxford, uh, the, the students were so shocked. He was the very first married Don in the university. Uh, he, being a canon of Christchurch Cathedral, had a house within the precincts of the college, and the students would go around and, and bang on pots outside their bedroom window at night uh, to express their disapproval of his having arrived at Oxford with a wife. But in any case, Vermeule's textbook, The Commonplaces, um, became uh, the main source of theological instruction in Oxford for um, generations. And that would have been the theology that Hooker studied. And Vermeule was invited by Queen Elizabeth to come back to England, but he, he was unhealthy and he actually died shortly after her accession, um, 1562, I think. And um, he exerted an influence over the English Reformation that was really quite remarkable. And Hooker, in some sense, I think, is one of his epigones. Uh, and, and the... Um, the other influence, I think, on Hooker that should be noted is Martin Bootser, who was invited by Cranmer to go to Cambridge uh, at the same time that Vermeule went to Oxford. Uh, and the irenical side of Hooker's theology, this... Uh, attempt to build bridges across theological divides is um, an aspect of his thought that he derives from the influence of Martin Bootser. Yeah. So those are two continental influences on his thought. And Calvin, of course. Calvin was a big noise in Oxford in, at the end of the 16th century, and Hooker shows every indication of having you know, studied Calvin's thought quite carefully. Um, so I don't know whether that's a sufficient response to the question. Thank you very much. No, that's very, very helpful and, and enlightening. Uh, uh, Professor Kirby, thank you so much for, for presenting for us tonight on, on this, uh, this, this great topic. Richard Hooker definitely deserves uh, our, our continued attention. Stay tuned for next Tuesday's uh, wrap-up session where Peter, Professor Peter Casarella will speak to us on the passage to modernity and thinking about the relationship of all these these thinkers to the modern period. Uh, thank you very, uh, once again, uh, Professor Kirby. You've given us a lot to chew on and a lot to dwell on here in, in, in this presentation. Well, if there are any unanswered questions, I'm, I'm quite happy to be emailed and I will respond. Thank you again. Very well. Cheers.